What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Market insight and analysis. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Good Friday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Kingston here with David Faber and Leslie Picker. Kramer has the morning off. Uh, coming off three days of losses, uh, stocks do look, to, do look to bounce here as retail sales come in nearly double expectations. Hopes for stimulus hang on by a thread. Pfizer says it could apply for emergency vaccine approval by late November. Our roadmap begins with breaking the stimulus stalemate. Pelosi and Mnuchin cite some progress. The president says he'll try to get Republicans to fall in line if a deal is reached. Plus, as Carl just told you, shares of Pfizer are rallying ever so slightly as the drug maker did say that it will seek that approval for a emergency use for its vaccine by late November. And as Carl mentioned, Wall Street looking to snap a three-day losing streak. September retail sales delivering a big beat. Futures up this morning. Carl. David and Leslie, a couple things working in the bull's favor today. Of course, uh, three days down, a little bit of room to bounce back on the upside, David. But futures were slightly negative. Then we got uh, that open letter from Pfizer uh, saying that we could be looking at potentially a request for an EUA uh, by mid to late November. And then retail sales uh, with that uh, blowout uh, number for the month and year on year, the figures, David, reflect a consumer that really has put together a nest egg uh, during the course of the summer. Uh, and that is continuing to provide some momentum for the consumer. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I do go back to that interview I did with David Berman, uh, uh, maybe it's six weeks ago already, but somebody who tracks retail sales more closely perhaps than anyone and inventories and how enthusiastic he was about having seen numbers the likes of which he'd never seen, Carl, uh, in terms of increases. And that is being borne out, it would seem, right now, uh, given the numbers that we are seeing. Uh, but again, as we've said so many times, it's a tale of, uh, two economies, a tale of two cities, however you want to express it, uh, with the big getting bigger and seeing the bulk of those gains and many of your Main Street retailers perhaps falling on much harder times or mall-based retailers uh, as well, Carl. So, you know, we'll keep a close eye on that. But something else we also mentioned coming out of bank earnings was the incredible increase percentage-wise in deposits at many of the big banks. To your point, Carl, that you just raised, People had been able to save some money during the course of the pandemic, perhaps by not going out, perhaps by not traveling, or simply as a result of wanting to be ready for what was certainly an uncertain time and continues to be. And maybe they're spending some of that money now. That's true. But uh, there was that new study out from J.P. Morgan Chase Institute this morning showing that spending dropped, savings dwindled for the U.S. unemployed uh, as they saw those enhanced benefits expire uh, earlier this summer. So it does call into question some of these trends that we're starting to see uh, with regard to, uh, you know, as you mentioned, with deposits at the bank, uh, what this means for retail sales moving forward, especially as, you know, you look at the headlines every morning and yet again, uh, Washington has yet to reach some sort of stimulus agreement. So there's still continued uncertainty on on that side of the equation, Carl. Uh, indeed. And that's why uh, we'll be watching some of the political calculus today regarding stimulus. Of course, McConnell yesterday saying that uh, the president is, quote, talking about a much larger amount than I can sell to my members. But 
in these dueling town halls last night, the president did say there are still ways that he can lean on some of those Senate Republicans. Here's what he said. I'm ready to sign a big, beautiful stimulus. You saw the other day, I say, go big or go home, right? That's what I'm I want it about. to be big. I want it to be bold. I want the money go to directly Are to Senate the Senate Republicans with you? They're going to go big? They'll go. A big yeah, old they'll number? Go. They'll go. They're going to be okay, very Okay, because so happy. far they have not I said know, they would. because I haven't asked them to, because I can't get through Nancy Pelosi. Okay. If but Nancy Pelosi and I, through my representatives or directly, I don't care, if we agree to something, the Republicans will agree to it. All right. So that sort of is where we are, David. Uh, we do know that Mnuchin is expected to give Pelosi an edit today of a revised uh, proposal. Testing language looks like we're making some progress. And Mnuchin says, David, if the deal is close, then the president will lean on McConnell. We just don't know how effective that will be at this point. Yeah. But what are we? I mean, we're, election day is two weeks from Tuesday, right? So... Carl, it's just hard to imagine when you look at the calendar and what's going to happen over these next couple of weeks that we really could see anything get through uh, Congress at this late date. Uh, perhaps it's uh, certainly nothing if not a strange year, but it seems unlikely. And then after, of course, the election, you have a, a lame duck, uh, you know, group of people who I don't know if these leaders, uh, you know, would be any more incentivized to get something done, especially those that may uh, not be in the position that they're in now uh, in Congress. I'm not quite sure what changes there. But interestingly, talking to uh, investors, there's become this increasing view uh, that it's it's less about who wins the White House, who wins uh, Congress. It's more about just consensus view among the various uh, groups in Washington. So if there is a blue wave, Wave. Uh, people are starting to see that as a good thing for the market because it would mean that it's easier to draw consensus, come up with some sort of stimulus plan. If you have, uh, you know, a mixed party situation, uh, historically, that's actually been good for the markets. People are saying now maybe that's not true because stimulus is so much in focus. Fiscal has really taken a front seat here, whereas, you know, we've seen mon monetary policy be so important. Fiscal policy is really important. So, any way that they can really see things get done uh, in Washington is, is becoming much more uh, in focus. Yeah, that's an excellent point. I mean, we always say, David, uh, markets like gridlock. Uh, but in, in this case, uh, a split White House Senate is definitely the, on the bearish case of a Wall Street strategist right now. Interesting, Goldman had a piece last night called What Else Can the Fed Do? If, in fact, there's a significant uh, pullback in economic activity going into the fall and the winter. And their point, David, is that most likely for the Fed, uh, maybe you increase the pace or duration of asset purchases. But they say, although it's likely, uh, it's not a foregone conclusion because it's, it's unlikely to be that effective. That's why all the uh, emphasis right now is on fiscal stimulus. Yeah. As we take a look at the 10 year note there, uh, Carl, having moved up from that point six six area or so that it was inhabiting for quite some time, but still uh, historically at numbers that we've rarely seen, certainly in our lifetimes uh, at this point. And many people come back to that, Carl, so many times with even the most sophisticated of asset allocators who have all sorts of strategies and all sorts of ways to explain the market and then come back to simply saying, well, money's just cheap. That's why things keep going up. There's nowhere <laughs> else to be. I always love that explanation. Probably yeah. has the advantage of being true. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think 30-year uh, mortgages, 10 record lows this year alone, as I think the latest print was 281. Uh, just amazing numbers. Let's bring uh, Joseph Amato this morning, CIO at Newberger Berman, try to take stock of where we are on this Friday. It's great to have you. Good morning. Good to be here. 
I guess the first question is, what do we say right now about the state of the consumer? There's such a narrative, a powerful narrative built around how important stimulus is, and then you get a retail sales number like today's. Well, I think over the course of the last uh, number of months, the economic data has been getting better, and the consumer has been surprisingly resilient uh, over the course of the last num number of months. Um, Certainly additional stimulus um, would be helpful. And whether we get that now, I'm a skeptic, we're going to get that you know, two weeks before an election. It feels like that's significant legislation. Uh, that's just going to be hard to get done. Uh, but at some point after the election, probably one way or another, you have some level of stimulus. But uh, the earlier points that you guys were making, I think are important, which is I still think monetary uh, policy is still the foundation of what's supporting this market. You know, if rates stay low, we're sitting here at a 75 basis point 10-year treasury, that's going to be supportive of, of, of risk assets. And the Fed looks like they're going to be accommodative for a long time to come. I want to ask you about taxes, uh, because even though we're focused on stimulus at the moment, taxes may be a story uh, for next year, obviously. Uh, Vice former Vice President Biden was asked about that at his town hall last night on ABC and tried to raise this notion of whether or not he would be able to work uh, with other people, Republicans on the other side of the aisle, with regards to taxes. Here's what he said. Take a listen. There's not going to be any delay on the tax increases. No, well, I got to get the votes. I got to get the votes. That's why, you know, uh, the one thing that I, ha I have this strange notion, we are a democracy. Some of my Republican friends and some of my Democratic friends even occasionally say, well, if you can't get the votes by executive order, you're going to do something. Things you can't do by executive order unless you're a dictator. We're a democracy. We need consensus. So, Joseph, how, how are you thinking right now about the potential impact on the trajectory, at least, of S&P earnings uh, if tax policy reverses from the last few years? Well, I think it's been interesting to watch the evolution around the market's perception of tax policy. You know, if we were sitting here, you know, middle of the summer and the expectation of a blue wave were happening, I think many of us would be saying that's going to be a headwind for markets because of the uh, near-term implications of tax policy, both on the corporate side as well as the individual side. And I think what has shifted over the last number of months is at least the perception that you're, you're basically going to get a policy that's spend now, pay later. So the spend now part, which is stimulus in various forms, that will help fuel the economic recovery and the durability of that recovery. And then you phase in tax cuts down, down the road. Now, if Biden is shifting that to more immediate tax cuts, I think that's going to come back to a notion of that may be some headwinds because increasing corporate tax rates, whether it be low 20s to high 20s, that's going to weigh on, uh, weigh on corporate earnings. Uh, no question about that. That's probably, uh, that shift alone is probably $10, $10 a share in SP 500 earnings. And uh, the market's going to have to adjust to that at some point. Joe, I'm going to come at you uh, about a different subject, not the broad market, but actually your business. Uh, you've been at Newberger a long time. You know, we're starting to see a lot of pressure for consolidation among asset managers. Uh, some of which obviously is resulting in positive moves up for some of these stocks. Eaton Vance, obviously, in a deal to be acquired by Morgan Stanley. You've got activists at Janice Henderson and Invesco trying to get them together. How do you see the world from your perch over at Newberger Berman as a significant asset manager and the consolidation that may take place? Uh, certainly, it's been interesting to see some of those um, announcements over the course of the last uh, number of months. We certainly feel that our competitive position is a strong one. You know, we're uh, we're almost 400 billion in assets under management. We have a broad-based business across both 
sort of more traditional elements of the sort of long only business in both equity and fixed income. And we have a quite sizable private equity business. So I think we've been better positioned for some of the shifts in the asset management landscape over the last number of years. If you if we were more dependent on some of the more traditional elements of active equity, for example, or active large cap U.S. equity, uh, you might have a different point of view. But I think we feel like we're quite well diversified by client type, by asset uh, strategy, asset class and strategy, and also by geography. So uh, we, we feel good about that. We're certainly watching the competitive landscape uh, around that uh, to, frankly, from our uh, standpoint, take advantage of that where, where we can. Yeah. In, in terms of taking advantage of that, Joe, uh, do you, are you looking at acquisitions? Do you think acquisitions make sense uh, in the asset management world? Historically, uh, this has been a pretty disparate industry because people say that when you do a deal, it's hard to kind of combine cultures of two different asset managers and, and make things work on that front. Um, so is that something that you're also considering as you uh, evaluate the competitive landscape? Our, our industry is littered with asset management deals that have gone very, quite poorly. Right? So we have grown organically over the course of the last uh, you know, 10, 15 years, and that's worked for us very, very well. Uh, integrating a large acquisition, as some of our competitors are finding out, is very, very hard to do. Uh, so that's not something that we see on our, on our landscape. Um, but uh, you know, when our competitors go through that kind of disruption, it does present some opportunities because you know there are distractions associated with with those kinds of uh, mergers and uh, whether it's consultants or large pension plans or whoever they look skeptically about how those how those deals are going to work. Hmm. Joe, how are you thinking about uh, SPACs? We've been getting, uh, I would argue, probably more color uh, in terms of the diversity of views on how smoothly this is going to go over the long term, whether it's from Larry Fink this uh, past week or Lloyd Blankfein last week, uh, the SEC chair. Um, how would you grade uh, the delivery of those uh, capital raises over the past few months? And to what degree do you see a warning signs on the horizon? I think the amount of capital that's been raised in SPACs this year has been pretty extraordinary. I think it's something like $40 you know, billion or so. And it's really shifted SPACs a number of years back was viewed as the sort of backwater of, of the capital markets. And uh, I think that that has shifted and it's becoming a more legitimate uh, avenue, if you will, for a private company to come public. Uh, so, you know, we've invested in SPACs. Uh, I, I, would, I would encourage being careful uh, in evaluating the sponsors of those SPACs very, very, very carefully and looking at the track records because investors are putting their money in essentially a blind pool in the short term. Um, but, uh, but I think SPACs are here, here to stay and I think are a legitimate uh, you know, pathway for companies to go from private to public at some point. Uh, yeah, they say may you live in interesting times. We certainly do, Joe. Uh, appreciate that. Have a great weekend. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks for having me. Uh, Joe Motto of uh, Newberger Berman. Uh, fair diet of data today. We talked about retail sales a little while ago. And in a few seconds here, we'll be getting some industrial production numbers. Ahead of that, let's get to Rick Santelli on this Friday. Hey, Rick. Yes, uh, we're waiting industrial production, a number that should be around up half of 1%. And utilization rates, we hope, get more into the mid-70s. Now, this number hasn't quite popped out yet. But I guess uh, while I have a quick few seconds, we know that retail sales is really strong, but the non-seasonally adjusted was actually weak, goes to the whole issue. Seasonality is a tough one. Down six-tenths of one percent, down six-tenths of one percent on industrial production. 
This is a huge miss, huge miss in capacity utilization rates, 71.5. That's a miss as well. So down 610, 71.5. Just to give you an idea, utilization rates pre-COVID were in the 76 and a half, 77 camp. So we have a long way to go there. And the 0.6, well, 0.6 is not going to make anybody happy. Uh, basically, if you look at the last three numbers, last four numbers, they've been uh, more positive. So this really is the type of miss that underscores that even though we're a service sector economy, uh, industrial production and mining and a lot of the energy sector, of course, has been COVID impacted. Leslie Picker, back to you. A big miss indeed, Rick. Thank you. When we return, news surrounding Pfizer and BioNTech's COVID vaccine candidate giving both stocks a lift this morning. Details right after the break. Stay with us. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Pfizer saying the COVID vaccine candidate that it is developing with partner BioNTech could be BioNTech, could be ready for an emergency use authorization application by late November. Meg Terrell joins us. She's got the latest for us. Meg. Hey, David. Well, in an open letter, uh, Pfizer CEO Albert Borla saying today that they still could know by the end of October whether their vaccine works to protect people against COVID-19. But they are going to have to wait for the safety data that the FDA uh, is looking for before they would file for emergency use authorization. And that data they expect they could have uh, by the end of November. So if all looks good at that point, they say they will quickly file for an emergency use authorization. Now, that is based on the uh, getting two months of safety follow-up data after half the people who are enrolled in the trial have received their second shot. So here you can see the enrollment in these trials. Both Pfizer and Moderna passed that halfway mark um, in late September. And so that's why we're seeing these timelines of late November for potentially filing for emergency use authorization for both of these companies. We've heard the same thing from Moderna's CEO. Uh, now, guys, of course, there's also news out um, on Gilead's remdesivir from a WHO trial of multiple repurposed medicines um, looking to see if they help with hospitalized patients. And these data from the WHO essentially say that remdesivir uh, and other medicines that they looked at had no benefit in terms of saving people's lives in the hospitals or even uh, reducing their hospital stay, guys. Uh, and Gilead responding last night, um, this is the WHO commenting here um, on the trial or the folks who ran the trial saying essentially, as indicated by overall mortality, initiation of ventilation and duration of hospital stay, uh, they saw little or no effect from these medicines they tested. Now, Gilead is disputing these data, saying that they appear inconsistent with more robust evidence from multiple randomized controlled studies published in peer-reviewed journals validating the clinical benefit of remdesivir. Uh, but guys, this looking like a blow to um, remdesivir's utility. Um, interesting to see this getting debated now in the scientific community and the biotech analyst community as well. Guys? Yeah, Meg, back to the Pfizer vaccine for a moment. Uh, its CEO has been quite uh, vocal, at least, or communicative in terms of updating us. You think the next update, though, will be, as they seem to indicate, when they find that the trial, perhaps as soon as late October, has been effective? 
Possibly, David. I mean, we have to hope that that is the next update. Um, that's only a couple weeks away, and it depends on how many infections they see in the trial, how quickly they'll get those data. But, you know, we're talking about potentially two weeks from now knowing if the first vaccine for COVID-19 in the U.S. works. Then we'll have to wait to see about safety. And finally, um, on the on the WHO stuff, to what degree? I mean, you talk about it running afoul of other things that are peer reviewed. How effective do you think uh, any retort to that a solidarity trial may be, Meg, at this point? It's such a good question, Carl. I mean, this was a, a trial of 11,000 people. Um, not all of those people were given remdesivir in this study, uh, but it is a very large study. And, you know, one analyst uh, at Raymond James, um, Stephen Seedhouse, pointing out in a note today uh, that, you know, these are strong data and Gilead sort of uh, rebutting them. He didn't look on that too favorably. It's also just kind of funny because there's this huge debate during this pandemic over, you know, peer review and putting information out there before it's been in a journal. And biotech companies do that all the time. Uh, so for Gilead to say, oh, well, it hasn't been peer reviewed. What about all the other things they put out that aren't peer reviewed? So <laughs> right, it's a very interesting right. debate. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and confusing. I mean, Chris Christie himself uh, gave Remdesivir a shout out in his statement yesterday as he was uh, discharged from the hospital in the last few days. Uh, Meg, um, thanks for helping us try to make sense of it today. Uh, Meg Terrell uh, on, uh, on the uh, Remdesivir study. We'll take a break here. Plenty of sell side stuff to get to, including upgrades of Caterpillar, Costco, Chewy and some downgrades once more of some consumer names like Clorox and Kimberly Clark. Don't go away. The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge, and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to fight rising costs of inflation or pay off your debt or anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, can help. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been helping great investors like you. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking for tips, Yahoo Finance makes it super easy by putting all the tools and data you need in one spot. Yahoo Finance takes a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and more. You can securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. That's how Yahoo Finance gives you insights and helps you take a look at your wealth in its entirety. That big picture perspective is what great investors need. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. Opening bell coming up in just about a minute's time. Uh, obviously, the consumer is at the center of the investor focus this morning as we got those retail sales numbers uh, pretty good today, up uh, one nine. We were looking for eight tenths, and X Auto up one five. We're looking for four tenths. 
Uh, David, one indicator is perhaps the uh, results out of LVMH. I know you've been following uh, that narrative pretty closely here, but uh, the results were not nearly as bad as some suspected when they came out yesterday. No, uh, you know, uh, it is, as you point out, the largest uh, luxury brand in the world, and it is growing the fastest with the exception, I guess, of Dior. Uh, you know, leather doing very well. Can't speak to that. Fashion and leather goods up substantially. They did still suffer a 14 percent decline in watches and jewelry. Um, but generally speaking, as you point out, Carl, and as the stock, of course, is reflecting, it was seen as a quite a strong quarter. Uh, reshoring of Chinese national spending sort of continued at a healthy pace. That's an important component of their overall business there uh, as well, uh, as you know. Uh, and then what does it mean for Tiffany, which gave us not quite full results yesterday, but generally positive, certainly on the bottom line, although not a lot of detail. We'll have to wait and see. I'm following it closely, as you say, Carl. And uh, they're getting closer and closer, of course, to meeting in court in early January in Delaware if they don't come to some sort of new agreement. Yeah. Let's uh, watch Brett fill in here and get the opening bell at the NYSE at the NASDAQ on this Friday. After f- three days of losses, see if we can build and hang on to some, although obviously yesterday's action uh, was well off the early morning lows. Speaking of the consumer, Leslie, uh, Plenty of upgrades uh, this morning from the likes of Chewy and uh, Caterpillar, but Costco too. Jeffries goes to buy. Uh, they go from 321 to 435. If Jim were here, uh, he'd probably endorse. But their general notion is that the moat that Costco has built and the progress that they've made on e-com over the years, which for a long time was a big liability for Costco, uh, is uh, resulting in a what they deserve a, a multiple. That's a premium that's justified. That's right. And it's one of the few places that's been able to actually bring consumers in the door. Uh, as Dom Chu, also a fan of their chicken, uh, will tell you, it's, uh, it's uh, certainly been a big beneficiary of, uh, you know, hoarding amid the pandemic. And, and I think as people look to what's going on in the second half, or I'm sorry, the last quarter of the year, where are we? We're in October. Uh, that is something that people are keeping in mind. Uh, but interestingly, J.P. Morgan downgrading Clorox uh, to neutral. Clorox, uh, they say, has uh, run up too much. It's more of a valuation play there. Um, you know, I don't know about you guys uh, in your quest to find uh, additional cleaning supplies <laughs> throughout the remainder of the year. I, we've still been a little bit more challenged on that front, so I'm not sure what their, their supply chain looks like. But uh, uh, J.P. Morgan uh, downgrading that one on uh, what looks to be largely just a, a valuation play uh, up 42.2% year to date. Um, guys, we've got a, a couple of M&A stories uh, to follow this morning, one of which I tweeted on earlier and has now been confirmed, uh, which involves Navistar. I talked about it yesterday as well, of course, the uh, truck company. They've been in long-term negotiations with Trayton, uh, which is controlled by uh, Volkswagen, but Trayton, also a significant owner, has been trying to buy what it doesn't already own. There's a look at Trayton's shot, uh, stock of, uh, I'm bringing that up, of, um, uh, of Navistar. Uh, and you can see what's happening this morning. Why? Well, it's a story that we did uh, uh, that, again, I, I tweeted on earlier, uh, but it's now been confirmed. And, and here's what basically it is. The two sides. Remember, there was a deadline for noon today here in the U.S. Eastern time for which uh, Navistar had to accept Trayton said our forty three dollar offer. That's sort of a drop dead date. Uh, filler be killed, so to speak. But um, they had an opportunity to talk both sides yesterday. And they, uh, what I am told, is verbally agreed, at least, to a deal at 44.50. Now, a letter to that effect has gone out from um, 
from uh, Troy Clark uh, at Navistar to uh, Matthias Grindler um, at Trayton saying we enjoyed speaking. We've now had an opportunity to review our conversation with the Navistar board and consistent with those conversations and your separate conversations with our two largest shareholders, Carl Icahn and Mark, Mark Rucheski, um, we are prepared to move forward with a deal at 44.50. The key here is, of course, Trayton's got to go back to VW, get formal approval. Uh, so we're not quite there yet, but we certainly are a lot closer and perhaps unexpectedly so, given it did appear that those tactics might not be effective, particularly, as I pointed out yesterday with Mr. Rucheski, who has a history of not selling to a potential acquirers, whether it's uh, Lionsgate and a lot of money that's been left on the table there, deals that came and went, or even Laurel. But in this case, it would appear he and Mr. Icon, as I indicated yesterday, are on the same page. They are supportive. And now this has to go from a verbal agreement to one that is written in stone, namely a contract signed off on by boards of both sides. So we'll keep an eye on that as we get closer. 44.50 a share. Uh, and then we have a deal this morning that I want to tell you about as well. I always like this when the companies come out and call something a merger of equals, but it's not. Uh, First Citizens Bank shares is buying CIT Group. Uh, and there's a look at both of those stocks. First Citizens is doing quite well, as you see there. It's an all-stock deal. CIT shareholders are going to get 0.0620 First Citizen shares. And that will result in a 61.39% split. 61% of, the, uh, of CIT will be owned by current uh, for citizens, shareholders, the remainder by current or uh, uh, CIT holders. CIT's had a brutal time of it uh, during the pandemic. You can take a look. Stock uh, been cut more than in half, although, of course, it is up today. Uh, and this is an all-stock deal, so it does give them an opportunity to potentially participate in the synergies that will be uh, brought to the fore, they hope, as a result of this, uh, this deal. Board of directors, by the way, 11 of them are going to be First Citizens' current board, and they'll add three, three CIT members. Current management of First Citizens also going to run the company. But I do love, Leslie, when they put in a release, for you young M&A reporters out there, don't believe it, <laughs> that uh, this is a transformational partnership and a merger of equals. It is not. There is no such thing. It is not a merger of equals. Well, there are mergers of equals when it's almost 50-50 and you actually split the board and have, have split management duties. But they're rare, very rare. But companies like to present this this way to their customers, most importantly to their employees. Sort of gives them a better feeling. Ah, well, it, you know, that's what press releases are for. It's all about, you know, eliciting those, those feel-good, uh, making everyone kind of rally behind these deals. But to your point, it's... Uh, it's rare and very difficult to see an actual 50-50 partnership uh, in, in deals. Yes. Uh, interestingly, though, the combined company will have about uh, $100 billion uh, in assets together. And, and certainly, uh, you know, to our point earlier, what we were talking about with regard to just, uh, you know, the financial industry overall, we've seen, uh, you know, a lack of mergers in that area. And 2020 kind of sees, seems to be more of a sea change. And this is uh, just the latest example of that. Yeah, not coming from a point of strength, unfortunately, for CIT, exactly. given their business. Yeah. Partnership. Carl? Well, speaking of, um, speaking of sea changes, guys, uh, a spokesman for uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson today says that the talks between the EU and the U.K. are effectively over, uh, saying that the EU uh, does not want to change their negotiating position. And Boris Johnson uh, warning Britons to prepare for a no-deal style exit, which brings again, David, the discussion to how financials are going to maneuver around their presence in London. We know they've done a lot already, but do they need to do more? We're really still talking about this, huh, Carl? My God, just, it never yeah. ends. 
It never ends. It, it, even when you think it's over. Even yeah. when it's over. Even when I'm sure it is over, it's really not over. I guess it's yeah. never over. I, I, and also, there's something going on with them in Australia, too, right? I, 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 you're going to have to go to somebody who's more thoughtful on this because I got nothing. Yeah, I, uh, I saw the word Brexit this morning, and I kind of refreshed my browser. I'm like, is it? Is this the right date? <laughs> it's, still, it's still 2020, right? Okay, yeah, we're still talking about it. <laughs> um, probably, you know, David, you talk about Navistar, and uh, it does remind you how much is going on in transportation right now, uh, specifically around semis uh, and engines and trucks, the way Navistar is positioned. But, of course, we all know about Nikola. We know about Tesla's interest in, in building a, a semi of their own. Uh, Ford, I see China sales up 25 uh, Tesla, according to Electric today, increasing the expected range of the Model Y. So if Jim were here, I think he'd probably leap on the Ford thing because he got very bullish on Ford a couple of weeks ago. And we've seen a couple of upgrades since then. But um, we look at retail sales today, even X-Auto. But clearly cars are a big part of the equation right now no, when it comes to the consumer. I tweeted this morning, yeah. I tweeted a chart of inventories of RVs. Uh, good luck trying to get an RV this year because there's practically none available at the moment. And we've talked a great deal as well about the, uh, the froth in the used car market also, the, uh, given the excessive demand for second cars, perhaps from people uh, as well, Carl. That's, that's been very tough to come by. Yeah, your point's a good one. And when it comes to trucking, by the way, as a reflection of the economy, I mean, we saw Jane Wells at the port in California the other day. Uh, all that stuff coming in from China, not necessarily a lot going out, but uh, imports are enormous right now. And trucking itself, Carl, is very strong. The, uh, the actual industry of, uh, of getting stuff out and, uh, from the port and delivering it. Uh, these trucks are full. That said, uh, the biggest laggard today is J.B. Hunt uh, on the S&P, down 4.7% uh, this morning. So, uh, you know, certainly an interesting space to watch. Uh, with regard to, you know, just the logistics industry as a whole. Um, Caterpillar, guys, is not quite where Boeing is in terms of Dow gainers, but it is number two. Wells goes to a street high 220 uh, uh, upgrades to outperform. And again, David, it sort of reminds you of that lurking cyclical trade, which um, is sort of like uh, the football, Lucy's football and Charlie Brown. Every time we think it's actually here, it takes a step back. But uh, they're talking about uh, substantially improving results uh, due to revenue growth from global growth acceleration, which sort of runs counter to all the worries we see about the fourth quarter and the first quarter going into what we know may be a difficult period, uh, on, at least from a global health standpoint. Yeah, I know. It's funny. Global health, of course. I mean, we're over 62 plus th uh, thousand cases here in the U.S., and obviously we know what's going on in Europe. But, Carl, you know, the idea if, in fact, uh, there was a Biden administration – uh, if, in fact, the Senate were to go Democratic, or even if not, the possibility of a large infrastructure bill um, is certainly one that's out there as well. And, Carl, I guess, uh, you know, may, may be something seen as a positive for the likes of Caterpillar also. Yeah, I think the question, too, is, is what does that mean for, for the farming sector? Obviously, uh, the current administration has uh, been a big proponent of it. Um, you know, the the farming sector took a big hit, obviously, with the trade war, uh, but they've been a proponent, at least, of, of various forms of, of stimulus to that industry. Uh, haven't heard as much um, from Democrats as far as what they plan to do for the farming industry, but that's an area that's been hit very hard this year uh, with regard to increasing bankruptcies and, and inability to finance and, and so forth. And, and Caterpillar obviously has a, a pretty big exposure to that world.
and finally, guys, uh, we're going to talk some Twitter later on this morning. Uh, Jack Dorsey with another tweet today, essentially uh, uh, acknowledging that their policy, or at least the communications around their policy of restricting content, uh, has not been good. We'll talk about that later, but shares are just slightly lower. Um, been a busy morning for Rick Santelli, and of course, we're going to get Powell and Clarida on Monday. Let's get back to Rick. Hey, Rick. Yes, Carl, and it's not over yet. We're still, of course, going to look at University of Michigan sentiment survey and inventories coming out at top of the hour. But boy, we have had some big data and in two different directions. Retail sales, very powerful. Industrial production capacity utilization, uh, surprisingly weak, actually. Look at intraday of tens, and you can see clearly the pop at 8.30 Eastern when the stronger data came out. Move that chart up to two weeks. And this is important because on the week right now, uh, we're down five basis points and tens down uh, six basis points in 30s, but virtually unchanged on a day. But over two weeks, you see the path of interest rates on the long maturities. We've gone from basically just shy of 80 basis points to a slight breach yesterday under 70 basis points. And if you look around the globe, it's actually much worse. Uh, you know, in other sovereigns, boon yields had a, a rather nasty week hovering basically at seven-month low yields. And on the foreign exchange side, it's all about China. We've all talked about how the Chinese economy, our big imports, as we've seen on some of the numbers, and not only here, but uh, many of the exports out of China go into economies where the demand is pretty good. But the point is, is that China's firing on more cylinders than many in the competition. You can see it in the foreign exchange markets. Look at the dollar versus the Chinese yuan. It's basically hovering at 18-month lows. Look at the euro versus the Chinese onshore yuan, and you can see it's hovering at five-month lows. And the euro currency is just weak pretty much against everybody as of late. Look at this chart starting in the third week in August against the dollar. This is the dollar index, which is the mere image of the euro. It's hovering at better levels. Let's call it the midpoint of the lows at the end of August. The highs that were right around, what, 94.50-ish, 60-ish, around the third week in September. We are at that midpoint. It doesn't instill confidence, though, because the dollar index is still down big time from some of its 102, 103 highs earlier in the year. Leslie, back to you. Trending upward, though, Rick. Thank you. Uh, coming up, there's a call for banks to stop financing fossil fuels. It's actually coming from members of the Rockefeller family. Yes, those Rockefellers, two of them, will join us to explain. Squawk on the Street will be right back. Twitter changing its policies on hack materials comes after a backlash from conservatives and the president over its decision to block links to that New York Post story about Joe Biden's son, Hunter. Uh, Jack Dorsey today tweets that straight blocking of URLs was wrong, and Twitter says it will no longer remove hacked content unless it is directly shared by the hackers themselves or those acting in concert with them. It will also label tweets to provide context instead of blocking uh, links. Uh, Senator Graham this morning, David, says that um, it's likely that they will seek to, uh, to subpoena uh, Jack Dorsey I think, um, next week. Um, and then we'll talk about, maybe later in the day, Ajit Pai and the FCC and the degree to which they may or may not have the votes to clarify uh, Section 230, which is really uh, getting in the weeds now in terms of intermedi inter intermediary liability law. Yeah, I've been trying to read about that as well. I'm sure you have, too, even this morning on my Twitter feed. But, Carl, I'm curious, when, uh, and if we, can we put that tweet up again? Because at the end of it, when, when Dorsey refers to new capabilities, is being updated to reflect these new enforcement capabilities. What does that mean? Or actually, that, that tweet's not from him, but it's involving him. What, what, do you know what they're talking about? I mean, yeah, he says it, too. We have the capabilities to do that. What does that mean? And why didn't they do it previously? Yeah, I, right. Well, that's, that is the million-dollar question 
Uh, how many tools do they have in the toolbox to flag or block content? And I mean, how long have they had those tools? Uh, why haven't they been deployed uh, up until now, three weeks before, two weeks uh, before the election? Uh, and this is, of course, just Twitter. Um, we're getting pr arguably some say even less transparency from Alphabet and YouTube. Uh, Facebook, of course, we have talked to death, but it's really coming into extremely sharp relief right now. And to your point earlier, Carl, with regard to this Section 230 and, and Ajit Pai's uh, is saying that he wants to clarify the scope of tech legal protections, while it is certainly in the weeds, uh, it could have large ramifications if that clarification uh, of the rule uh, extends to the liability on these big tech companies to really uh, take a, a bigger role in patrolling the content that's on their site. Currently, they're really shielded. And, and the only reason to act um, is, is just based on reputation, as far as I know, in terms of kind of the legal ramifications here. So if a change to Section 230 uh, would make them more liable to the content on their website, I don't know how those capabilities, as you mentioned, uh, would really play a role or if they would have to beef those, beef those up uh, or change their business models entirely. I think that's really an important space to watch, especially as we talk about uh, the Twitters of the world, the Facebooks, YouTube uh, or, or Google of the world. Uh, you know, I think that's that's going to be an important uh, space to watch. And I'm not sure that any change in leadership next month uh, or in, in terms of electing people next month would would change the desire to to hold tech companies more accountable. It seems like kind of a bipartisan effort at this point. Yeah, I mean, uh, you look at the stock move uh, from 48 now to, to 45. I mean, but, but people are, in fact, asking, what would Twitter look like if, uh, in fact, it were responsible for uh, the content? And how would that change the way all of us, politicians included, uh, interact with the platform? Uh, by the way, David, on top of all of this, there was the outage last night, which uh, lasted a fair amount of time. And then the company had to come out after that and say that that was not the result or there's no evidence that there was, it was the result of a security threat. But it's been a very long week for Jack Dorsey. Yep. Yep. I can see why he might want to step up to become executive chair, find somebody else to be CEO. <laughs> <laughs> you, you get in line. Yeah. As we go to break, uh, take a look at this week's top performers on the NASDAQ 100. Uh, Zoom video topping the list. Uh, new paid products. A couple of upgrades this week. Continuing its red-hot run with a uh, double-digit gain. Squawk in the streets back in a minute. Welcome back. Tucked into the CARES Act was a little-noticed windfall for private jet companies that will reward wealthy flyers for decades. Robert Frank joins us now with these details. Robert. Good morning, Leslie. Well, it is the CARES Act gift that keeps on giving to private companies, private jet companies, and flyers. Now, to help the private aviation industry during the pandemic, the CARES Act suspended the 7.5% federal excise tax on private jet flights for the rest of this year. But... There was a loophole, no expiration date for those flights. So you could buy the flights now and take them years from now. Private jet companies are launching big bulk jet cars that don't expire for four years or even longer. NetJets, Magellan, Jets.com, lots of others racking up big sales right now with cars of up to 100 hours that are tax free. So if you bought 100 hours on a G450 from Magellan for $1.2 million, you would save $94,000 on taxes. And by the way, you don't have to take the flight until 2024. Now, some companies like Sentient or Fly Exclusive don't even have any expiration date. So you can take these flights anytime until the funds run out. Now, the IRS 
has not given any guidance on this practice, but jet executives say they are complying with the law, which of course didn't require a time frame. Meanwhile, the private jet industry is one of the few travel sectors that's actually largely recovered with business back to above 80% to where it was pre-COVID. Guys, back to you. Okay, so Robert, this seems like it would obviously provide a pretty big windfall for these private jet companies. Did they also receive any sort of stimulus? I can't remember from, from Washington either earlier this year uh, or as these discussions have unfolded, are they part of the conversation? They are definitely part of the conversation, and you're right, they did. In addition to the federal excise tax being waived, they received over $600 million in stimulus from various programs. Now, at the time, this was in the spirit of keeping the more than 1 million jobs that are part of the general aviation industry. Uh, even within the industry, they didn't expect to rebound this quickly. I think the question is, should taxpayers continue to subsidize private jet flights for eternity for uh, flights that are sold right now. And I think, uh, look, that bill was done very quickly. We all know there was mistakes. But this is going to be a question that I'm sure will be raised on Capitol Hill. But right, but uh, it goes back, Robert, as I think you've indicated, you can buy a jet, right, a private jet, and you can write off the entire cost. Yeah, and that was, that was a feature of the Trump tax cuts right. that, that led to a huge boom in private jet sales at the time. So we have a large number of private jets out there, and that was a benefit that, you know, again, you could depreciate that asset immediately. So that was a huge boom. And then this, the $600 million plus the federal excise tax, this is an industry that has benefited enormously from federal help, and it's recovered quickly. Yeah. How do they measure those hours, Robert? I'm just, just curious. Is it time on the ground, too, or is it only actually in the air? It's, it's, uh, I, that's a good question. I think it's just time in the air, but, but I'd have to check on All right, that. Let me know. You know, it looks like a good deal. <laughs> <laughs> okay. yeah, the, the fact that none of us know for sure <laughs> says a lot. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, oh, I don't know. Um, we'll take a break here. We got consumer sentiment on the other side of the break. You've been listening to the opening hour of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.